Take your Bibles then and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And I did get word uh, just a moment ago that the Henry baby is John Mark. What is that, the 12th? Or does anybody know John Mark? You're going to call him Jack. So uh, that's cute. So uh, we're, we're grateful for these uh, new lives that the Lord has given these families. No, I don't have to tell you that we live in turbulent and complicated times, I don't think. Uh, we certainly are facing those things, and yet at the same time, I think that most people in our society are looking for comfort, and many people are very complacent in their life. Everybody wants a good job. Uh, not everybody is willing to work at that with training and education in order to secure such a job. Everybody wants nice things, but not many people are willing to delay their gratifications of the moment. Uh, in order to buy, get those nice things later in life. Everybody would like to have a good marriage and a good home. Uh, not everybody is willing to put out the effort it takes to have such a home. Uh, we'd, rather, we'd rather have uh, minimal efforts on our part. We'd like to have uh, everything pretty much handed to us as much as possible. And that attitude is filtered down into the church, of course, and into our Christian communities. Uh, often people expect a Christian life to be easy. It should have few demands. It should simply be a restful thing and, and almost a playground rather than a battleground. We want spiritual maturity, but we'd like to have it in five easy steps. Uh, if you just give me uh, the steps to do that, make them easy. Uh, it's not too difficult, but don't give me any of that nonsense about reading the Bible or Bible study. Don't, don't talk to me about some intense times of prayer. Don't tell me about the need for fellowship and ministry within the body of Christ. And especially don't talk to me about witnessing or memorization. I mean, those things are way too hard for me to do. Uh, we, we would like to have a lazy person's form of Christianity. How can I be lazy and still spiritual? Uh, matter of fact, I was thinking uh, in that, you remember that dummy series of books? And somebody ought to write a book called Christianity for Dummies. And I thought that was really cute. I looked it up on Amazon and it's already been written. <laughs> you know? So I'm too late to that game. But it uh, might even be a good book. I have no idea. But uh, it certainly fits our times in many ways. Well, Paul's going to blow a lot of this out of the water. Matter of fact, I was thinking more and more as I was going over my message this week how out of step this message is with our society. How totally out of step it is with much of Christianity. What I'm going to read, say today, drawn from the Word of God, is not what most people want to hear, even many Christians. And yet it's the Word of God, it's what God says, it's what God teaches, and we trust we'll try to be faithful to that. But Paul, in the latter part of, of chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, is uh, comparing the Christian life to that of the, the life of the athletic person, the athletes. Uh, in, in order to be a winner is that many are trying to run the Christian race who, are not, who have not entered the Christian race. There are many people putting out great efforts in running the religious life that are not actually in the game. They're not in the race. In other words, they're not Christians. And that's a great concern that we might have. You might recall a few years ago, one of the, the uh, uh, marathon races, one of the big ones, uh, somebody jumped in the race about two miles before the end. They hadn't run the earlier part of the race. They jumped in at the end where nobody, or no cameras apparently or judges and didn't see them, and they won the race. And when they run, the, everybody was amazed. Who is this guy? He, he doesn't look like an athletic uh, Olympic runner or mar marathon runner. And who, what, we don't know who he is. And so they started looking into the details. They found out he hadn't entered the contest. He wasn't a member of the contest, and he, and he, didn't, uh, he didn't run the race. He cheated. 
And so he was disqualified. He lost his prize, of course. When the judges took a good look at him, they saw he was not in the race. And so we have that same idea here. Are, are you sure you're in the race? But so before we can go further, we've got to make sure that you're in the race of the Christian life. Are you truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? What are the, what are the requirements? Some of these people here might have missed that. You'll notice in the first part of verse 24, do you not know? This is the 10th time in this book of 1 Corinthians he said that phrase. Do you not know? It's found only one other time in all the New Testament in the book of Romans one time. So it's a big deal. These people didn't know a lot of things. And because they did not know a lot of things, they were suffering in their spiritual life. And so he writes to them, do you not know? So do you know for sure that you are in the Christian race? So let me uh, talk about that for just a moment. What are the requirements to be a Christian? I am concerned, uh, you know, even in our church, after all these years of ministering and preaching the gospel on a regular basis, almost every week we say something about how to be saved in the gospel. Uh, I'm concerned that if we would ask you right now, I, I, matter of fact, let's put it this way, if somebody would ask you tomorrow morning, how can I become a Christian, that there would be some of you that wouldn't know how to do that. Could you honestly say you know how to tell somebody to be a Christian, and have you done that yourself? And so there's requirements to be in the Christian race. Let me make it as simple as possible in the book of Romans and look at just a couple, three passages. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Now here's the nutshell of how we know that we're in the race. Now we know that we are Christians. Number one, verse 23. You have to recognize your sinfulness. 3.23 of the book of Romans says it this way. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This one, in a short sentence, puts together two important pieces. The, the Lord is glorious. The Lord is holy. The Lord is wonderful. And you and I cannot, cannot live up to his standard. We all fall short of his glory because we're all sinners. And so the very first thing we recognize is he, we have a great God, but we are great sinners. And therefore we're in need of something we cannot produce ourselves because we are too sinful to do so. And so number one, we are great sinners, and he is a great God. But go over to chapter 6, verse 23, and he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The second thing we need to know, there are eternal consequences for those that do not know the Lord as their Savior. For sinners who have not been cleansed from their sins, there is waiting, awaiting us spiritual death, eternal death. The wages of sin, what we deserve for being sinners, is eternal death. And the wages of sin is death. But he goes on in that verse and says the, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now go back up to chapter 5 verse 8, just a page back, and see a second major requirement then. And that is that as we look at this is that we have to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. Chapter 5 verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Everything goes back to the cross. Uh, while we were sinners, before we deserved nothing but hell, Jesus Christ died for us. He went to the cross for us. He loved us that much. So that, as we just saw in 623, uh, we have the offer of a free gift from God himself of the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. So, so far we've seen we're great sinners who fall short of a great God's glory. Secondly, we've seen that the provision has been made in Jesus Christ on the cross who died for our sins, took our sins upon himself, died in our place. 
that you and I can be given a free gift of eternal life and know him forever and have our sins forgiven. But let's not stop. Go to chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10. All that is true, but have you personally met the requirements? Have you entered the race? Chapter 9, chapter 10 of Romans, verse 9, saying it very clearly. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with, my, with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. And so we have this, the next step is, is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to place your faith in the, uh, the Savior who has died for us and has been risen from the grave. And he says when we place our faith in him, and we are given his righteousness, it results in salvation. So it's a simple thing in a way. It's recognizing our sins. It's turning from that lordship of sin to the lordship of Christ and trusting him for the forgiveness of sin. And you might say, well, you know, I've done that. I mean, I prayed, I prayed those prayers and, 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 uh, and I believe those things, but I'm not sure I'm in the race. Drop down to verse 13. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you had truly placed your faith in the risen Savior, and you truly believe in Him, if you've turned from your sin to turn to, and turned to Christ, and you've called upon Him for salvation, do you believe that He will renege on His word? When He says, if you call upon me, I will give you salvation. Do you believe He'll keep His word? It's not what you've done. It's not that you become a perfect Christian. It's not that you have no sin any longer. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you called upon him for the forgiveness of your sin? And he says for those who have truly done that, they're in the race. They know Christ is their Savior. So my friends, examine your own life. I know most of you know all that. Some may not. But can you tell somebody else what I just told you? If somebody would ask you tomorrow, how can I know that I'm a Christian? How can I, how can I be saved? Would you say, uh, call the pastor? Or would you open up your Bible and take them to three or four different verses in the book of Romans and say, here's what God says, and lead them through this, this salvation plan that is Christ. You know, you've got to be in the race before you can run it. Paul says that we go back to our passage, run in such a way that you may win. We want to be winners in the Christian walk. So that's our first thing. We must enter the contest. Here's a second similarity. Uh, if we are going to be what God wants us to be, if we're going to be winners in the Christian race, it's going to involve preparation and discipline. Now those are dirty words for a lot of people. Preparation and discipline. But Paul pulls those punches as Jesus did not, as scripture does not, so I'm not going to either. We're going to look at what the Word of God says. Look at verse 24. You've already read that. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Self-control, another dirty word, right? Verse 27, but I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I, I discipline my body, another dirty word, and make it my slave. People don't want to hear about self-control and, and discipline and these types of things, but, but God teaches that. If you want to be a winner in the Christian life, it's going to provide, you're going to have to be prepared, and you're going to have to be disciplined to do so. The Ismanian games, uh, it was not enough just to enter the games. You didn't just sign up. 
uh, you, there was a long period of, of pre preparation, um, and only one took home the prize. Uh, in the Christian life, all can be winners if they prepare and discipline themselves for that. In the Ismedium Games, they had to have a certain discipline regiment that lasted 10 months. And then a month or so before the contest, they had to come to Corinth and prepare there for a special regiment. It was very difficult, very hard. But in the Christian life, we don't have that. But what we do have is a need for the preparation and the discipline to be a winner. When I was wrestling in high school, we had a young uh, teacher there at, the, at our school who had been apparently a pretty good collegiate wrestler. And he wanted to get back into the amateur circuit and uh, where they go eventually to the Olympics and so forth. And he thought he was probably good enough to, to uh, win the contest there in Indianapolis without doing a whole lot of preparation. Uh, so he, he started practicing with us for a while. And he, he did practice. He wrestled against some of our best guys and did pretty well, but uh, he didn't want to really get too much shape. He didn't want to lift weights and run all, all two or three hours after practice like a lot of us were doing. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't think he needed that, he was good enough. He knew he was going to face his first opponent was, a, was the state champion of, of Indiana, but you know, he had wrestled in college, he could whip that guy. So he did what he, he got medium prepared, and he went to the wrestling tournament and the guy racked him up in a moment and, and hurt his body. He was not prepared for the contest in front of him. Far too many Christians are not prepared. They're not willing to do what is necessary. Well, I'll, I'll do just what I can do to get by. You're setting yourself up for disaster spiritually when you believe that way. What kind of discipline is necessary? What's he talking about? Well, he doesn't say the details here, but by God's grace, Hebrews chapter 12 does. And I want you to go back there and look at four requirements that the Lord gives us here to be a winner in the Christian race. This is a wonderful passage using the exact same illustration that Paul's using. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it's the same illustration. And there's four requirements laid down here for us. Number one, we need to lay aside the sins that entangle us. Chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. So let's stop there for a moment. First of all, we need to lay aside the sins that entangle us. Athletes who really want to win don't abuse their bodies. They don't go out drinking and running around on the weekends. They don't smoke. They don't overeat. Uh, they don't stay up all hours they're, when they're in training. Uh, however, too many of us have kept a what some have called a pet sin that has keep, kept us from living for the Lord. We, we've gotten rid of some of our sins, we've removed some of those, but we have a pet sin or two that we want to keep hanging around. John Bunyan, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, called these his darling sins. I really like that. These Puritans had a way of saying things. He said this, if a man will depart from iniquity, he must depart from his darling sin first. For as long as that is entertained, the others, at least those that are most suited with the darling, will always be haunting him. <laughs> That's interesting. I thought about that for years, that statement. What is your darling sin? What is your pet sin? You know, the one that you really, you kind of keep close by. You, you, don't, want, you don't want to lose it. You, you, you kind of like, you put it away for a while, but you always kind of bring it back. It's your pet, so to speak. Maybe it's different forms of lust. Maybe it's anger. 
Maybe it's lack of forgiveness against certain people. I, I don't know. But it's a sin that you're not willing to truly let go of. And whatever that sin is, my friend, is a sin that's going to trip you up. You get going for a while in a Christian life. You notice this? You get going the right direction. You're doing the right things. And, and you're starting to move forward. And then that darling sin shows up and tempts you. And you fall. And you start all over again. You know what happens when that happens? You get very, very weary. You get very tired of the Christian life. You don't think you can go forward. And it's mostly because the darling sin is still hanging around. And so the passage says here that we need to lay aside those things. Secondly, lay aside your encumbrances or hindrances. You know, a runner doesn't run with boots on. You know, work boots and an overcoat, right? I, as far as I know, there's no rules in the rule book that said you, you cannot wear work boots when you run the 100-yard dash or an overcoat. I don't think there's any rule because there's no rules necessary, right? Who would do such a thing? And yet when he speaks of the encumbrances here, the hindrances, he's not talking about sin. He just talked about that. He's talking about other things that slow us down. So these aren't sins per se. These are just simply things you've allowed in your life that keeps you from going forward. Maybe you're too busy. Maybe you have too many hobbies. Maybe you have too many side interests. Maybe you are in too much technology. Maybe you allow the pressure of people and the tension of life to weigh you down so that you never seem to get off the mat. These are the encumbrances, the encumbrances and the hindrances that he says, lay aside. Now we're not done, and you'll see a difference in just a moment, but I want to go to the third one, and that is to run with endurance. He says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he's not talking about a 100-yard dash here. You don't need endurance for a 100-yard dash. At least I didn't used to. Uh, probably need it now. Uh, but uh, you need quickness for a 100-yard dash. But for a marathon, you need endurance. If you're going to run two or three, four hours, you're going to need to be someone who's in shape and, and able to endure if you're going to do that. Many Christians I have, have seen over the many years of ministry, I've seen many, many Christians who are pretty good short-distance runners. That they do real well for a year or two. And then they start to, to move the wrong direction, to lose their way. They can burn up the track for a little while, but then they lack endurance. If you're going to be a winner in the Christian race, you're going to have to have a free look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. So let's start with the last line. We grow weary. We lose heart sometimes in this life. We do. And if, it's mentioned many times in scripture. And if, if that wasn't true that we battle weariness, the Lord wouldn't talk about it so often. And every time he talks about it in the New Testament, he takes us right back to the same thing. Look to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. He's the author. He's the perfecter. He's the trailblazer of our faith. He has gone before us. He has lived this life and suffered all the worst that the world and the devil could throw at him. And he, he, he remained victorious. 
He has gone to the cross to die for our sins. We don't become perfect people now, but now we have Jesus to set the standard and Jesus to walk with us and Jesus to empower us. That sets us apart from everybody else. And I know when I get weary, and I get weary often, I'll be honest with you, in trying to serve Christ, I know when I get weary, weary it, I always have my eyes on something other than Jesus. And at the same time, I'm going to be honest with you, it's not always easy to refocus. Because there's so many things to, that takes my attention. There's things in my own life, there's things in, in this congregation, there's things in this world that draw my attention. I get focused and fixated on those things. And I get weary, and I get burdened, and I want to quit. Jesus faced all that, but he faced it with victory. And so he says here very clearly, consider him, verse 3, who has endured these things, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. I'll guarantee you, although there's many, many threads, that if you're growing weary and losing heart in the Christian life, you've lost focus of Jesus Christ. Why you got there, I don't know, necessarily. But that's where you are. And you need to take a beeline straight back to Jesus Christ and realize that he has not left you alone. He's not left you to languish. He is there with you. He has gone before you. He will take you to the, to the finish line if you'll let him. What a wonderful passage to, to consider at this time. Go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 9. The thing that, that we need then is to focus on him. Many of you know if you've been around here very long, we used to have a Labrador retriever named Snoop Doggy Dog. It's a real spiritual name. And uh, we just called her Snoopy most of the time. But uh, we had some other little dogs that just would run away. We let them out the front door and we found them in the next county. But uh, Snoop didn't do that. Snoop loved to go to the woods with me. Absolutely adored it. So I would take Snoop with me to the woods. We'd go walking. I let her off her chain and she'd run. I don't know where she went. She, she, and if I walked a mile, she walked 10, or ran 10. She would eventually you know, just chase every rabbit and every squirrel and whatever else she was doing all over that woods. But I never worried about Snoopy. She'd come back to me weary, tired, tongue hanging out, and, um, but she always came back. And you know why? For some strange reason, she wanted to be with me. I, I can understand. I'm sure you understand that, right? She wanted to be with me. She wanted to hang out with me, and I never worried that she'd come back. She always came back, and we went back home, and we both took a nap. You know? she, was weird. she wore herself out going after all these side things, but she came back eventually to me and got her rest. Now, that's kind of a very imperfect picture, but that's what Jesus is saying. I know you're going to get weary. I know you're going to get sidetracked. I know you're going to chase after these things that are going to tear you down. You come back to me. I'll take you home. We'll rest. And we'll get, we'll get healed. Going back to our passage then. The similarity between a Christian in the race and an athlete is that we must enter the race. Secondly, we must discipline. Thirdly, we must have a definite purpose. Verse 26. Therefore, I run in such a way, not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. The athlete is a winner who is a winner, has set himself a goal or a purpose. He knows what he's about. She knows what she wants to do. The af a average athlete may be content with just showing up. But the champion is not content with that. They are going to do more. 
The winner makes it their goal, their obsession. If you've watched the Olympics, whenever we have those every couple of years, they always have the back stories of how the Olympians got there. And they're excruciating stories, aren't they? Some of the sacrifices that these young people have made to be there. It's unbelievable. And so it's not quite apples to apples here, but he's saying here, if you're going to be a winner, uh, you're going to have to be focused. You're going to have to have a purpose in what you do. And Paul said, I don't just beat the air. Now a lot of people say, well, this is shadow boxing. He's talking about shadow boxing. He's not. Shadow boxing is actually part of a training for a, for a boxer. So that's not exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about getting in the ring and just throwing punches that don't land, wasting your efforts. Some of you are boxing fans. I used to watch it some, and I watched uh, back in the heyday of Muhammad Ali, and I despised Muhammad Ali because he said he was the greatest. He's a very humble kind of guy, and, uh, and he constantly talked about how great he was and how wonderful he was and, and blah, blah, blah. I, I rooted against him every time he boxed, and he didn't get beat very often. He, he said, what I do is float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, right? What did he do? You watch it. I accidentally ran into a film clip the other day, so that's why I'm thinking about this. Here he was, when he went out to fight somebody, he often fought a boxer who was much better puncher than him. And if that boxer caught up with him, he would clobber him. But he didn't catch him. He backtracked for eight rounds, flitting around, and the boxers would, would punch and jab and do haymakers and never touch him half the time, 90% of the time. And by about the eighth or ninth round, when they were wore out from boxing and not hitting nothing, he beat them up. He had learned that if you box and not hit something, you, you wear yourself out. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Don't waste your time on things that don't matter. Don't get all so, so wrapped up in all these things, just, just hitting, going through act, large amounts of spiritual activity with no purpose. I box in such a way, not, with, not just beating the air, I, I, I have a focus, I know where I'm going, I'm, I'm accomplishing that. And then finally, we both are striving for an award. Both are striving for an award. Verse 25, he says at the end of the verse, he says, run in such a way that you may win. And in verse 27, I, but I discipline my body, I make it my slave, so that after I preach to others, I myself may not be disqualified. The winners of the Ismanian games were crowned basically with honor. Now they did get a crown. It was made either of pine leaves or wilted celery. Now I don't know about you, but even good salary doesn't impress me much. <laughs> if I had a, a crown of wilted salary, I'm not sure I'd place it on my mantle. So they didn't box, they didn't fight, they didn't run in order to get some salary. They run and did all they did for the honor. Because now they were national heroes. Everybody looked to them as, as at their hometown when they went home. They would cut a hole in the wall of the city to let them in and kept that hole in the wall for a while, indicating to the world that we don't need a wall when we got a guy like his, this here in our city. Songs were sung about them. Poetry was written. They, it, later in life, they were set at the front row seats of the other contest. They were heroes. They were honored. That's why they did it. And as wonderful as that was, it didn't last. Eventually somebody would beat them. Or eventually they would grow old and have to retire and quit. And eventually they would die. Like we all do. 
You know, we think about all the things we do for, in, even in sports and so forth. And uh, the other day, when I was wrestling in high school, that was so important to me. And there was good things. I learned a lot from my wrestling and from discipline and the sportsmanship and, and, and all that kind of good stuff. It was good stuff, and I enjoyed it. But I was in the attic just a couple of weeks ago getting Christmas stuff down for Christmas, and I came across a box, and in that box was a very broken trophy and some very wrinkled up ribbons, and I realized nobody cares that I was a wrestler. And apparently not even me. And apparently not Marsha, who put her, probably put them in the box. You know, who cares? You know, again, it was fine. I enjoyed it. I, wouldn't, I would do it again. But I did it for a very temporary prize, didn't I? Just a short-term prize that right now nobody even remembers. I remember, but I have embellished my abilities over the years. <laughs> nobody else cares. Nobody else ever cares. But you know who what? When it comes to Christ, we're living for an incorruptible crown. One that will last forever. One that will never perish. One that will be with us for the, all eternity. Because we're, we're, we're living in such a way as to please him and to receive that crown. Some have taken this verse 27 and misunderstood it and made it asceticism. And a lot of movements over the years said, oh, you know, if you, if you starve yourself, if you fast for days, if you don't sleep, if you stay out, sleep outside with, with very few clothes on, if you beat yourself with whips, if you only eat bread and water, you'd be a more spiritual Christian. There's nothing in scriptures that teach anything like that. Matter of fact, Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 to 23 says that it does nothing for your spiritual life. Nothing. Asceticism is not what he's talking about. He's talking about rewards. Go to, Roman, go to Revelation 4.10. Some people say, well, I don't want to serve Christ for crowns or rewards. That seems cheap. Well, maybe until you understand, if I understand this correctly, Revelation 4 will they existed and we were created one day whatever has been given to us in the way of reward whatever has been given to us in the way of an incorruptible crown will be cast at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ in worship don't you and I want to be there to cast whatever those crowns might be at his feet in eternal worship and so it's not a self-centered thing it's an opportunity for us to worship him in a very special way Going back to our passage one last time, Paul didn't really talk so much about the reward here. He said one other thing. It's kind of a devastating thing. It's, it's a very scary thing. The Apostle Paul said, I, I discipline my body. I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. I don't know about you, but that sends shivers down my spine. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 books in the New Testament, who's, who, who's, who pioneered church planning in Europe and Asia, who was one of the 12 apostles. This is the apostle Paul. And he says here, I, I, I do not want to be disqualified. And he's not talking about losing salvation. If the uh, athletes at the Ishmanian games were disqualified, they didn't lose citizenship. It has lost the reward. I was watching, I think, the Olympics a few years ago, and, and a, a, one of the dashes, uh, one, of the, one of the main uh, uh, racers, one of the guys that he thought was going to win the whole thing, 
got a fault, had a false start. And they went back and did it again, and he had a second false start, and they disqualified him. And when that happened, I don't even know the guy. So Paul was concerned about that. I'm concerned about that. Are you concerned about that? That you do allow nothing in your life that might disqualify you from serving him and living for him and receiving your crown. I want to finish off by going to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul comes to the end of his life now, several years later, many years later. And he goes right back to the same metaphor. And he says this. As he, his last testimony in this life, the last written testimony we have of the Apostle Paul. And he looks at his life and he says this in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. I always read that by, in light of what we just looked at this morning. I always read that in the light that the Apostle Paul is in essence saying, shush, I made it. I've come to the finish line. I've kept the faith. I've finished the race. And there's a crown laid up for me. Folks, I don't know about you, but I want that crown. I want to finish the race well. I want to honor Christ with my life now. And I want to be able to one day cast whatever crowns I might get at the feet of my Savior and worship him with all my heart and all my soul. I hope that's your heart today. You can only do that according to Hebrews. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, uh, this is a passage that uh, probably a lot of people want to avoid. We'd like to have a very easy, complacent Christian life. And you tell us if we're going to be winners in this Christian life, it's going to take discipline. It's going to take focus. It's going to take looking to Jesus. And yet all those provisions are ours, Christ. We thank you for those in, in, your, in your name. We thank you that you've not left us to ourselves and our own resources and our own strength. But that power is yours to give us. Your Holy Spirit lives in us. Your word guides us. Your people encourage us. And we have the chance to worship you this morning. And hopefully for those that know you for all eternity. Lord, I pray for this congregation this morning. I know people here, some of them are weary. Some are struggling. Some are sidetracked. Some are in sin. And you know that. And you know who they are. Lord, grab their hearts this morning with your word and with your spirit and draw them to yourself. Give them the power they don't have. Give them that strength. May they finish well. In Jesus' name, amen.